Are you tired of being broke? Do you struggle with debt? Are you ready for a change? If so, you found the right place. Welcome to the Proper Sense Podcast, where money doesn't talk, it works. My name is Eric, and I invite you to join me and my co-hosts, Keith and Nick, as we reveal the truth about how to succeed financially. Whether you're just beginning your journey or have many miles behind you, we're here to help. If you would like to follow or contact us, visit propersense.com. Welcome to the Proper Sense Podcast, where money doesn't talk, it works. I'm Keith, and I'm joined today with both my co-hosts, Nick and Eric. What's going on, fellas? What's up, Eric and Keith? What it do? I'm back, and we're back. Yeah, how was how was your time off last week, Nick? Did you get uh, some relaxation in? It's a blessing and a curse. Humans don't want to carry around the work phone and the personal phone, so they're merged into one, which... I was trying not to look at it, but each time there's a ping, you check your work email. So it's it's certainly a skill doing nothing and just being present. And, you know, we all have the rat race of life, chasing around kids and work and all that. And, and it really is tough to turn off. So that's something that uh, I need to work on. But it, it certainly was nice being a stay-at-home dad and getting my girls from the bus stop and mowing the lawn and just hanging out with my wife. So it was time well spent. I think you hit it right on the head there that the ability to do nothing is a skill in and of itself. One of the things that I started doing recently, and it's really dependent on what you do for work, whether you can get away with it, but I, I turned off the notification for emails on my phone. So that way I still check it periodically throughout the day, but instead of just being at its beck and call all day, I intentionally will sit down and check my emails. And it's kind of nice because it, it limits a lot of the pings that you're getting from your phone, but you know, it's very, very work dependent on whether you can do that or not. Well, and th- this whole thing with the cell phone attached to your hip, it, it's, it's pretty new, right? Like I, I graduated from college in 2004. I think I got a cell phone in 2006. It was a, a POS. It didn't have a, fra- it had a fraction of the functionality the phones have today. But, you know, having a, a computer strapped to your side is still a human experiment, in my opinion. And it's, changed our behavior. Some would argue for the worse. It's certainly done a lot of good things. I can work from anywhere, but at the same time, balancing being present with your family and looking another human in the eyes versus having your face buried into a screen is, is certainly a delicate balance that a lot of us struggle with. Yeah, that's a great point. I remember Keith and I's dad telling us years ago um, when the fax machine first came into work, and how much quicker you could get things done because things could get done in the same day versus versus having to mail things and and you know every time there's a change in a contract and he talked about with cell phones the idea or at least everybody thought was this is it we're going to be able to get all this work done sitting from a beach spending 4 hours a week getting it all done but in true capitalism type society, what does it mean? It just means production needs to go up. Now you've got tools that can produce more and get you more efficient at things. So there's always going to be somebody that's going to work harder and use that tool to, and so then everybody has to play catch up and it's never, technology doesn't ever seem seem to bring you more time. It just brings a larger requirement for more work. 
Yeah, Tim Ferriss with the four hour work week, I think addressed this before anybody was even realizing this was happening. And I kind of try to take that to heart, but it's difficult when you work for big corporations and things like that and feel like you got a responsibility towards your boss and to always be the guy that can respond to an email at eight o'clock at night or whatever. Eric, I like, I've noticed that you've got your notifications turned off like when we're, when I'm talking to you in Slack or something, I can see that and that works good. But for me, the problem is I'm the, I'm the guy that keeps a clean phone in that I don't like the red dots over my emails or the red dots over my text messages. And uh, I've got however many emails that I have linked to my phone. I think the next step for me is probably a, a page out of the uh, four-hour work week is to just remove those all together and chunk out my day and say, look, at 3.30 or at, you know, at 9 a.m. and at, at 3.30 p.m. I hop in and I check these things. And that's more than good enough and nobody will expect anything more from you it's just personally that desire to pick up your phone and handle whatever it is but that just creates anxiety and as we're saying isn't a good long-term plan for uh for stability and, and actually getting things done and not being distracted keith when i first met you we were trying to coordinate a meeting and i sent you a text and you deleted it and you never got back to me it made me feel like a uh, a real horse's ass so that's just some feedback for you <laughs> this is true and that is uh not like me, but here's the reason why. Because when we first were getting to know each other, I hadn't saved your name in my phone yet. And so the priority of that text message, in my mind, fell to the bottom of all the other things that I had to do of the people that I recognized. So, uh, and then eventually fell through the cracks. But I apologized to him for that, and uh, it won't happen again. One of the biggest issues with text messages is that you can't mark them as unread. That's the technique I use in my email. So something comes in and I read it, but I don't want to deal with it right now. I can mark it as unread, leave it in my inbox, and I know it's still on my to-do list. What I hate about text is you get it, and if I open it, there goes the only notification that I have. So if I'm not ready to reply or call back or respond or do something, then now I have to find some other tool to remind me to come back and solve that. And that's always been one of my biggest gripes with uh, the text messaging system. Well, speaking about uh, planning and uh, creating kind of a to-do and looking forward and staying organized, today we're going to talk again about budgeting. Now, in the past, we've talked specifically uh, about what that looks like, but today I'd like to take some time with you guys because I know that you're both really skilled and, and excellent people to be sharing information on this today. I want to kind of speak to you guys specifically about how you budget and not only how you budget but how you involve your family, uh, most importantly, your spouse, your significant other, uh, and sort of what that looks like from your guys' perspective to help give people listening a real-world example of people that are actually practicing what they preach. So um, I think the easiest way to kick this off is let's start by, again, just redefining what is a personal household budget. At the very core, a budget is just a forward-looking estimate of income and expenses. Uh, you'd probably call that revenue and expenses if you're referring to it in a business setting, but whether it's personal or business, that's the crux of it. So it's an earning, savings, and spending plan that's done in advance of those activities happening. So generally, either on a monthly basis quarterly basis, annual basis. The time frame doesn't really matter, but those are typically the uh, most popular ones. But it's just, it's a plan for your money instead of trying to figure out where it went after the fact. 
And I would add to that, it's a plan for your money uh, over a defined period of time, at which point you'll come back and revisit and replan. Is that something you do agree with? Yeah, so the budgeting aspect typically starts prior to the time period. So for personal finances, you usually use a month. That makes the most sense. So you'd build the budget in advance, do the spending, the income's earned, you track it throughout the month, and then you would reconcile it at the end of the month. So then you would verify you had your estimates, and then you have your actuals, and then you know exactly what you spent in every category and how much is left over, how much you saved, all of that stuff. Yeah, and we'll get specifically uh, into that. But before we do that, we talk a lot about budgeting, and now we're talking about your guys' budgets personally. So we must place some importance on this. Let's talk about why a budget is absolutely essential for everyone, regardless of their personal financial position, how much they make or don't, um, their spending relationships, why everyone, regardless of if they think they need one or not, absolutely needs a budget. So as we just said, a budget is a plan. So regardless of the topic, people that plan typically do better than people that do not. So that's true in college planning or college preparation. It's true in actual college. It's true in career planning. You know, somebody that just sort of goes through their career willy-nilly, taking opportunities as they pop up with no real direction, yeah, they can be fine and they can they can end up living a, a decent financial life with, uh, with a reasonable career track. But people that are more planned out, they know where they want to get, they have the steps necessary to get there and are targeted, ha- usually have a better ability to achieve higher levels in that sort of, in that sort of uh, career or in that sort of planning. So, you know, even at the most basic level, if you're going to go driving somewhere, whether it's somewhere new, whether it's somewhere you've been, you don't just hop in the car and start flipping a coin and taking lefts and rights. You're never going to get anywhere. You get a plan. You put it into Google. You print out a map if it's 2006 and you're using MapQuest or you pull out a Rand McNally if it's 1995. Either way, you know where you're going. You have a plan and that's how you get there. And then ultimately, a budget is the same thing as that in the financial realm, and the budget removes ambiguity. So instead of just wondering what you're spending in certain things, wondering what categories you're overspending in, the budget is what actually will not only tell you what you're doing, but also give you the tools to follow the path towards the categories that you want to be emphasizing and and avoiding. Eric, I love this idea that you said of have having a plan. Budgeting is essentially having a plan for your money uh, because that levels the playing field when we're talking about people of all different financial statutes, right? Uh, everybody should have a plan, has goals, things they want to accomplish. They may look different. It may be paying off debt. It may be saving for retirement. It may be getting uh, your investments up and running and growing your assets. But regardless of it, you've got to have a plan for accomplishing that And what you're saying is that this budget is the ticket for doing that. Absolutely. It's the foundational piece for any sort of long-term financial strategy. If, you know, you can achieve things without them, you can get, you're not going to die. That's, that's one of my favorite phases when people, you know, get all caught up in the analysis paralysis or whatever it is. Even if you don't budget, it's not like the negative side of not budgeting is you're just going to die one day. So you're still going to get through life. Things are going to continue to move forward. But 
the budget just provides the roadmap and the foundation for what can turn in ultimately to long-term wealth building and, and uh, security in, in later age. And if that all wasn't enough to convince you, think about it this way. Every successful business runs a budget, multiple budgets, budgets on projects individually as an organization as a whole. For instance, I work some in the real estate development uh, industry sector and our mantra is schedule, scope, and budget. Now, working for a company that's doing $900 million worth of projects, none of these get successful. Nobody gets rich if we're not sticking to a budget and following through with it. So if it's important at that level, you can be damn sure it's going to be important at the household level. Eric and Nick, talk to me about what happened in your life that made you decide or maybe forced you to learn to budget and actually start doing it. So I didn't have a starting point. I had, I had zero context for what my financial house was doing. I was spewing money on the weekends. I'd worked for five or six years and had nothing to show for it. So, so for me, I, I was wandering blind through the woods and I just wanted to know where I was at. And I think that's, that's half of the battle. Knowing where you're at is how you make progress. So essentially, I was just sick of being broke and not knowing wh where my money was going. And I think that's huge, Nick, right? Because the first stages of creating a budget isn't necessarily that you become a master at it and take complete control of your finances. But I think that first step that you're talking about, just figuring out where the heck you're at today uh, will do uh, exponentially great things for you as you continue to put your portfolios and matters in order. Yeah, exactly. And my experience was not that far removed from Nick's. We graduated college, my then girlfriend, now wife, and we were just wandering aimlessly living in Los Angeles, spending every dime that we had and every a bit of credit we were able to get a hold of. We spent that as well. And so one day the merry-go-round stopped. We ran out of money. There was no more credit. The minimum payments on everything we owed, plus our living expenses, started to eclipse what we made. And then we were talking about getting married and it just kind of came to a head in the road and we had to make a decision. How are we going to pay for the wedding that we've talked about for three years if we, don't, we can't even save a dime outside of paying our credit card debt and paying for our basic necessities? So we just ran into a wall and then started to explore how do we get out of this? And that's where we started to come across personal finance literature, read about budgeting. And that was the first step is just getting a clear and concise view of what we were doing and, and how we were spending our money. What happened in my life that made me decide to start budgeting was actually watching Eric, who, for those of you who don't know, is my older brother. So I was some years behind him coming out of college, watching him get his affairs in order having a couple beers with him and listening to him talk about the freedom that comes with understanding where your assets and things are going. So, so that was kind of the kick in the butt that, uh, that brought me into the financial budgeting world. Nick, how long ago did you start budgeting? That actually segues nicely into what I was going to ch chime in with, Keith. So a lot of my decision to start the budgeting process just came from being a mature adult. So the time that I'm talking about when I was spewing money and didn't know where, the, where my money was going, I was in my mid-20s. I was uh, more concerned with my social life and traveling and going out and chasing girls. As I approached my late 20s and 30s, I, I just became sick of it. 
Like I wanted to own a house. I was sick of renting with roommates. I was sick of the fratastic lifestyle. So a lot of it just comes with being a, a, a grown man, a grown person and getting fed up with not knowing where your money was going. So a lot of it was just natural. Now, if you're a, if you're a 45 year old man or a 55 year old man and you're still struggling with budgeting or you don't know where your money's going, I would say, wake up, it's time to take some ownership because if, if you have the same systems and processes in place and you don't have a framework, you're, you're never gonna make progress. The definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Yeah, that's absolutely perfect. So it's just part of growing up, guys. So once you've hit the wall to where you're tired of doing something the wrong way, uh, start doing stuff the right way here. And, and that includes building out your budget. Okay, so we've talked about what made you guys decide and when you decided to start taking this budgeting uh, personally and seriously. Uh, let's jump ahead how has it changed your life since you've started doing it for the better or however? Keith, I, I like the way that question is framed because it suggests, it suggests that budgeting is a process and it very much is a process. I, I don't like the use of the word budget because it infers that it's a, it's a one and done type thing. Like you put together a budget and then you never look at it again. Well, we, we, we know that's not how life works. Life changes, your income's gonna change, your expenses are gonna change, you might have a kid, you might get married. So it's a very fluid process. And for me, my, my budget is a working document that is a system or a framework for how I make my money decisions. For me too, how it's, I guess, changed my life, I'm gonna reference Eric here in the, uh, growing of the financial muscles. And what I mean by that, I like to go to the gym and, and exercise and keep an eye on my health and my weight and things like that. But I am not the person that's measuring out calories or counting proteins versus carbs. That's all just kind of been understood in my mind, watching my body change as I do certain things. And so I can make decisions on whether I'm going to eat that whole pizza tonight, just based on kind of understanding what the, the, the last week looked like for me. And I kind of think about that the same with my budgeting. It gives me a framework and an understanding of my propensities. And it also gives me an idea, just knowing innately, just through feeling what my month has been like, right? For instance, this week with my daughter's birthday and, and the multiple parties and the spending got out of control. You know, I feel that and understand that and know that I need to be cognitive of that in all of the financial decisions that I make for the remainder of this month moving forward. Yeah, that's a good point. It is a financial muscle that you build up over time. And for me, budgeting was the first step into the larger world of finance. So, you know, prior to our sort of bend in the road or split in the road when we started running out of credit and didn't have enough money to continue the lifestyle we we're living. It was just work. Look at your checking account. If there's money in there, you can spend it. You know, I used to have payday. I'd have my wife's payday on our calendar. I'd have my payday on our calendar because that was an important day. It was very important in our house because there was always things that we needed to do or needed to buy or pay this or do that. And it was based around when that next payday was coming in. You know, so talking about how has life changed your, or how has your life changed from budgeting, I don't even know when paydays are anymore. I haven't known when my wife's payday is for the last 
you know, two years since she went back into the corporate world. I know when mine is because I do one once a month at the beginning because it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It's not a part of the day-to-day. I don't need that deposit to land in the checking account because I already have a budget. I have money set aside and we've built up our financial plan over the years. So, you know, that's been a huge life change is not being glued to that, not having to always have the app for your bank up on your phone or in the recently used. I literally only open it on my phone if I need to deposit a check because I don't want to go into the bank. That's pretty much the only reason why I even use the app on my phone. It's not to check the balance because I know I have the money in there because I have, I put the money in there and I know what my expenses are because I budget. And so that's, that's one of probably the, one of the biggest impacts that we've had. The other thing is you start to understand your life costs. You really start to understand what your priorities are. So we might think our priorities are this, but our spending shows that it's this. We might think our priority is fitness and, you know, spending time with the kids and doing that. But then you look at the, at your budget and you realize, well, I spent $1,500 in restaurants last month. So my priority is obviously going out to dinner and having drinks with friends and, and those sort of things. So it really just gives you that picture of how your life fits together and the budget gives you the ability to actually make decisions up front about how you want it to go rather than just wondering where it went at the end. It sounds like you're saying budgeting systematized that huge part of your life. And then Eric, I wanted to ask you too about something you said. When, when, when was the last time you walked into a brick and mortar bank and how did it make you feel? The only experience I have with a brick and mortar is going to the local Wells Fargo to use the ATM outside. That's the only reason why I've been to a bank in probably six years. Fun fact, I worked at Wells Fargo for about nine months when I lived in Los Angeles at the busiest branch in the entire company, and it was a nightmare. I thought I was, I was just getting on to my personal finance revolution and I was really interested in budgeting and I had really started to get my footing in that whole space and thought that I was going to be a banker to sit and help people with their money. That's how naive I was. I literally thought the banker's job was to help people with their money. The truth is, for anyone out there that doesn't know this, is you are a hardcore salesman trying to sell them financial products And you are not only graded by the day, you are graded by the hour. Our manager would come around with a clipboard asking how many solutions we had sold in the last hour because we had daily and hourly goals. It sucked. So obviously they've been through a little bit of a change with recent news. But uh, bottom line is, long answer to a short question, I hate going to the bank. Well, and to be fair, Nick, Eric... I don't want to say hates, but has a strong aversion to people generally because he believes strongly in human error. And if something can be done through technology, i.e. banking or whatever that be, he's going to do it in that fashion. 100%. But Nick, let me pose that question back to you because I know you didn't just do a short stint, but you made quite a little career in uh, one one of those big names. I don't want to get sued. I don't want to slander anybody, but I worked for a major mega Wall Street bank, and I also have my personal bank account with a mega Wall Street bank. And I don't know if we have enough time. I don't want to go off the rails, but Wall Street big banks are 
openly working against their clients, and, I, and I'm an investment nerd, so I'll, I'll go in as a hobby. This, this amuses me, and I'll go in and read the earnings notes. So the big public banks have to report earnings every quarter. They publish these long budgets, essentially, balance sheet, income statement, but also there's the manager notes, and they talk about their various lines of business. And if you're paying attention and reading these notes, they don't even try to hide the fact that they're fleecing their clients. Like they're preying on the American public openly. And, and to me, it, it personally makes me sick that I'm too lazy to go in and get rid of my checking and savings account and credit cards and yada yada at a major Wall Street bank because it is a pain in the butt. But I try to interact with them as little as possible. And I almost went off the ledge. See, you guys are entrapping me into this. But so I, I am a owner of a business. It's a partnership. It's an LLC. And I get paid four times a year. And I get these checks and I go in from my same corporate bank account that pays me out and I deposit them into this bank. And I'm not going to use the bank's name, but they put like seven to 10 day business holds on my money. And it just infuriates me because I get paid. You can set your watch to when I get paid. Anyway, long, long story short, don't like big banks. Real quick on that. We call those sticky products. And that's why. That's why you get people... Checking accounts, multiple savings accounts, credit cards, HELOCs. Hey, you want to take your home loan and refinance it through that? The more crap you have with them, exactly like you said, the harder it is to leave. You know, even the transferring of a checking account is so difficult for anybody that's done it because you got to keep them both open for months. You just can't remember all of the things that are going to hit that debt or that are going to debit that bank account. So that's exactly the intention is make it very difficult for the consumers to leave unless you are an unprofitable consumer because then they will push you out or they will cancel your account because you're costing the bank money. And Nick, the only thing we entrapped you in was that uh, backhanded uh, brag, Mr. Wall Street. No, so I, I can't help myself. I have one more thing to say about this. So there's this big push, like socially responsible investing, companies doing right by people, their employees, their communities, yada, yada. So the big banks are big on this, like the front door. It's like a marketing thing. Well, they'll highlight all the philanthropic and community initiatives that they're doing. And I think that's great, okay? But on the back end, like Eric, you talked about action speaking louder than words. Look at the most fine corporations year after year in this country. You can set your watch to the big banks. They're, they litter the leaderboard every single year. The order might change, but it's consistently the same seven or eight large banks. And the range of offenses also change year over year. So on the front end, yeah, they're doing all this good work. On the back end, their true colors show the most fined institutions every single year in our country. The moral of the story, folks, find a good credit union, stick with them. All right, let's get uh, into the specifics here about this personal budget. Eric, how do you build your budget? What tools do you use? What goes into the line item specifically? And when and how often do you budget? So let me start first by going over how I used to budget. So that's a little bit more relatable for anybody that hasn't done it before. Um, now, granted, the tools have become a lot easier to use, a lot more invasive, but at the same time, the trade-off is you get a lot more granular detail and, and in many cases, they're easier to start with. So in the early days, it was simply a spreadsheet and I used mint.com. And that was back before Intuit bought it. So anytime that happens, you lose a little bit of, uh, 
of uh, individuality within a company. Either way, it still functions in a very similar way as it did. Um, you asked Nick earlier when he started budgeting. Mine was September 2009. So back in September 2009, when I wrote my first spreadsheet and started using Mint.com, that was how I got started. So I would just put up a basic list of expenses in an Excel sheet, and then I would track my spending on my debit cards using mint.com. And so that way I could categorize everything and then transfer it over the spreadsheet. It was very manual. I had targeted savings accounts. So I had, back then, I think it was ING before it became Capital One 360. So I had 10 or 11 different savings accounts with them. One marked Christmas, one marked you know vacation this summer, whatever it was. So anything I was, any savings goals I had, I would do that. So that was the, the beginning and things have evolved and they've gotten a lot simpler over the time because I believe in simplicity. I think that simplicity over complexity will typically win out in the long run unless you're somebody that just loves getting into the weeds. For most people, complex is a friction point and it makes it difficult to continue. So by doing it as simple as possible, your long-term results will typically end up being better. So now I use a service called You Need a Budget, YNAB, Y-N-A-B. And I use it for everything. So I build my budget in that. I track all my expenses in that. It transfers over directly. So where I used to have to transfer it from spreadsheet over to, or from Mint over to spreadsheet, I can do it all within that, that program. This isn't necessarily a plug for YNAB, but I've been using it for about six years now. And I've been, I've been very happy with the service. That's the, those are the tools. That's the basic setup. I go down every single month. I sit down. And I take last month's categories, I take last month's budget, roll it over, and then go down line by line. So I start with savings, I put my savings at the top. So whatever I wanna save, so Christmas, we save every month for Christmas. Birthdays, we save every month for birthdays. Travel, we pay our insurance annually, so we have to track that. We break out the total cost by month, and we save that much per month, and then at the end of the year, we pay the insurance premiums. Then we go down to our fixed costs. So our mortgage, our internet costs, anything that's fixed and stays the same every single month. And then finally, down at the bottom, we have our variable expenses, which is groceries, gas, expendable, miscellaneous. And then as every transaction comes through, you just tag it with the category right in the software and then it automatically comes out of the bucket. So if I give groceries $800 for the month and then I go to the store and spend $150, all I do is tag that category or tag that transaction with that category and it automatically removes $150 from the grocery budget. Very simple. You can do it in a couple minutes a week. Yeah, that sounds like a, a robust and, and simple uh, to use model that I think people should be paying attention to. Inversely, I do at a fault probably do it a little bit more manually. Uh, in the real estate development industry, which I'm partially got a leg in, uh, I live in Excel and just always have, and the industry's gone to more advanced platforms like Argus and things like that, but for simplicity's sake and, and the ability to kind of customize uh, the pro formas and the underwriting that we do, I've just found Excel uh, to, to kind of be it for me, and I'm, and I'm kind of an Excel guru in that regard. So if you're more comfortable in that, you can do it the manual way that Eric used to do it. You know, all of my uh, income coming in is pretty automated already into savings accounts, into 401ks, IRAs, and then of course I just uh, dollar cost average as I can into my investment accounts at regular periods of time throughout the year. And so that really leaves 
paying attention to the expenses. And for me, the biggest part of my budgeting is sort of the retroactive, looking back at the end of the month of what I did versus what I thought or had projected that I was going to do, learn, and I remodify that in my Excel budget. And again, it's a little more manual, but I find it as a tool, which we'll talk about a little bit later when we discuss our spouses. Uh, it, it's clear to sit down my spouse who maybe isn't paying as close attention to this and sort of rebuild the budget while looking at the previous budget. It sort of is a way for me to catch her up on what we're doing. Again, a much more manual process and there are probably some better ways to do it, but that's just what's been working for me. How about you, Nick? What do you guys got going on over in your household? So a few things. One, I like Eric's mantra of simple beats complex. I, you know, I try to incorporate that in my whole life, not just my budget, but I think that's very impactful. And then also on the budget front, in addition to Simple Beats Complex, done is better than perfect. So my, my budget is not down to the item. It's not down to the cent. My situation, just, just for some context, I get paid four, four times a year. So I'm, I'm not a W-2 employee. Uh, my income, I wouldn't say it's random, but it does change. I have to pay quarterly taxes. So things are a little bit different, but I too use Excel. And I, I keep my budget in the form of an income statement and balance sheet. So I have multiple tabs in my Excel spreadsheet. And again, I'm, I'm a, a, a fixed guy. So I have my fixed, fixed expenses. So my mortgage, my insurance, my daughter's preschool, and then I'll, I'll budget out a variable portion for activities, activities for the kids. I play golf, so I'll budget for that. And then I also include my IRA savings. So I max out my IRA for me and my wife every year, my 401k. So I actually include that on the expense side. That's more of a trick for myself. It's not really an expense, but I like to include it as such because I wanna bake it into my routine or bake it into my budget. I update the numbers once every month and usually the, the income statement or my budget doesn't really change, but I've grown fond of updating my balance sheet, which is probably a different conversation. But as your investment balances grow, as your savings grow, as you pay down debt, your entire net worth is going to grow. And, and once the numbers start to get meaningful, which that's going to be different for everybody, but it's a really nice way to see how your budget, being responsible on the budget side, can translate into a bigger net worth. And every time that you do the right thing, whether that's monthly or quarterly, let's say you're paying off debt, let's say you're saving more, that increases your net worth. And it's actually a double benefit, right? Because as your debt goes down and as your savings go up, that, that equity, right, the value of your household goes up. So it can become a very habitual, very enjoyable thing if you're doing the right thing on a monthly basis. But it all starts with the fundamental budget. I want to say something here a little bit outside of the scope of what we were just discussing, but I think we all have a similar approach where we are a little bit more reactive and that's a little bit more of a product of where we are in not only our careers, but also where we are in terms of budgeting and our financial plans. So we've all been doing this for a number of years. So it's easier for us to put something together, keep a little bit of an eye on it and then, and then view it from the month back and categorize things and see how we did. For those of you that are starting out and you might not have any money in savings or you might not actually 
have any assets that, and that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to build that foundation. The budget isn't, or it shouldn't be a reactive thing. It should be a proactive thing. So the way you do it is you would build your budget for the month and then your decisions on what to spend money on should be used through the view of the budget. So if you set $200 aside for dining out for the month, you don't just go through the month and then see if you hit your target. You actually refer to your budget to see if you have money left in your dining out budget before you go out. So if somebody says, hey, next Friday we're thinking about getting together and we wanna go grab drinks after work, if you're still in the foundational process of building that, you need to look at your budget. You need an updated budget, you need transactions that are classified, so that way you know if you have money left. Because if you start overspending your category or overspending multiple categories, there's only one place for that money to come. That comes off credit cards because you don't have the money to actually spend. So that's one of the things I like about YNAB is the system is actually designed to not let you spend money that you don't have in a bucket. I mean, obviously you still can, but that's something to remember that there's proactive versus reactive and being proactive is especially important in the beginning because you need to look through the lens of your budget before you make purchases. And that's, I think, an important distinction uh, that can be lost when the three of us are sitting around talking about doing it from a retro perspective. Yes, I think that's extremely important, right? At the base of it, building a budget is you telling you and your money where to go. And if you tell it to go somewhere and then use it somewhere else, well, where are those dollars going to come from? And that foundationally is the entire point of creating this budget. So I'm really glad that you brought that up because uh, you really need to hit that home. So then Eric, tell me if that's the case and something happens, life happens, we've talked about emergency funds and things like that. And this might be a difficult question to articulate. But what do you do when something does change mid-month or you do over-prioritize that dinner that your wife just will not let you meet or, excuse me, will not let you uh, get out of, but your budget is capped? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question because it happens all the time. The best budget is never, ever, ever going to plan out. A budget is definitely a framework and a plan, but nothing ever goes according to plan. You're talking about, even on a monthly basis, you're talking about 30 days that you're gonna stick exactly to these numbers? Probably not. So, for example, a simple example, let's say you've got two different buckets or categories in your budget. One is a vacation you're saving for, and you guys are managing to put aside $300 a month, and once it gets to a certain point, then you're gonna book your vacation because you're a responsible adult and you don't buy things with money you don't have, and then you have $200 set aside for dining out. Well, you have that night that just doesn't end, you keep going out, you guys go to another bar, you, or you go out with some more friends, or whatever the situation is, and you blow that budget up. So instead of spending $200, you now reconcile your budget mid-month and you realize that you've already spent $400 in the dining out category. Well, you look through your budget, where can that money come from? Well, if everything else is earmarked and is gonna be spent, and the only thing left over that you've got is that $200 you were setting aside for your vacation, well, guess what? Your vacation just got pushed back by another month. So the point is every dollar has to come from somewhere, and the idea is to avoid putting it on credit cards because you think somehow you're magically going to write a check for your credit card balance in the future, because you're not. So the bottom line is money has to come from somewhere. If you overspend in this category, you gotta take it from somewhere else. 
Yeah, thank you for that clarification. It actually segues into something else that I want to talk about here. Eric, uh, you mentioned human beings uh, being sort of reactive, whether it's just naturally or however, when it comes to personal finance. And so sort of what you were just touching upon, when you guys do budget forward at the uh, beginning of the month, obviously you look back as we're talking about it the previous month and there must be some learning that must come from it, some iterating uh, that happens over time. So I would imagine that a budget is an iterative ongoing process, both as you look back at your spending habits and also potentially as income coming in changes and things like that. Absolutely. When you first start budgeting, you're going to be way off. You probably have no idea how much you spend it at the grocery store unless you go back three or four months, categorize it, average it out. You just won't. So you're really shooting from the hip when you first start budgeting. You start pulling reasonable guesses the best you can and then you modify as you go forward. So you can modify mid-month. You realize, oh, everybody thinks that they spend four or $500 on groceries for a family of four or more. You don't. You spend probably closer to a thousand bucks. It's just one of those categories that every time you're coming home from work and you swing by and you spend 40 bucks or you, then you do the big shop, you spend $200, it just nickels and dimes you all month long. And most people only think about the big expenses. So what happens is your first month, you're going to suck. The second month, you're going to suck a little less. The third month, you're going to start to see patterns. And then as that continues, you're going to get better and better and better. And eventually, because we're all creatures of habit, most of the things we do are repetitive with a few outliers here and there. Eventually, you go from spending an hour or two trying to organize your budget at the beginning of the month to maybe spending 10 minutes. I mean, I've been budgeting for 13 years now and I've done it every single month. And I probably don't spend more than five or 10 minutes actually establishing the next month's budget because it's almost identical to the last month's budget. My numbers are pretty dialed in. Sometimes we go over, sometimes we we're under in certain categories, but over time you develop patterns and you're exactly right. It becomes iterative of your previous budgets and it gets easier and easier and easier and easier. Yeah, Eric, an example of that specifically to, to groceries and iterating your budget, Mine has been pretty automated and standardized month to month until relatively recently in this COVID landscape, uh, specifically to groceries, when all of a sudden everything was getting ordered to our house through these platforms that are delivering it to include becoming way too comfortable with the food deliveries from restaurants, right? Uh, we've all been hunkered down and things had to change and that's fine, but we had to go back and look at our budget and realize that we are way outpacing what we had previously uh, been spending on groceries and eating just because we are eating out but in, having it delivered and paying a premium on it, as well as having all of our groceries at a premium that's baked in, aside from the annual fees that you think that they're only charging, you know, we can get into that. But that uh, is an example of saying, okay, this is the new reality for however long it's going to be, and how are we gonna fund that line item, and from where are we going to fund it? And that's exactly what a budget does. It shows you what you're doing. I said we're creatures of habit and it gets sort of repetitive, but we also evolve over time. Or like the example you're using here with COVID, you have something like the DoorDash and the Grubhub. Well, not only do you start doing it more frequently, and I know we all kind of think, well, it's cheaper than going out, but actually take a look at your next Grubhub bill. It's probably going to be comparable with the delivery fees. Most of the restaurants charge more for the food. You know, there's a whole 
step or added layer to it, not to mention the convenience factor, which makes you do it more. So it's likely that a lot of people's spending habits on food, just like yours, has changed dramatically in the last 12 months. And most of them don't even realize it and are just wondering, you know, where that money's going or, or, or why all of a sudden their credit card bills are piling up because they're not actually tracking it. So they have no data that shows them what's happening. Nick, do you enjoy budgeting? I can't say that I enjoy it. It's not like I get off work on a Friday night and crack a beer and look forward to budgeting, but I invert that question and I enjoy not being broke. I enjoy knowing where my money's going. I enjoy having a framework. So I guess to answer your question, I don't enjoy the activity itself, but I enjoy all that comes with building a responsible and meaningful budget. I'd like to take a crack at that one too, because for years, I loved it. I was that guy. I was obnoxious around my friends. None of them did it, but they had to listen to me talk about it all the time. And part of the excitement came from the stepping into the financial world. And I, and I just started to eat it up. I wanted to know more. I wanted to know everything there was out there. And I read all the books and listened to the, to the audiobooks and watched the shows. And I loved it. But over time, it became like brushing my teeth. It's something I just do. It's a habit. And the only time I really think about it now is when I forget to do it. That's exactly why I asked the question. So people may be listening, thinking spreadsheets, balance sheets, numbers, mathematics. How can any of this be interesting? But the one thing that I think we can all relate to in, in some form or another is, let's say that that weekend at the bachelor party or wherever where things got a little bit crazy, spending went a little bit out of control and you wake up that Monday morning with that sick feeling in your gut, afraid to pull up your bank account just to see how much you actually spent. That's an uncomfortable way to live life is to always be worried in arrears uh, as to your actions. And so maybe the sitting down and, and creating the budget, and it only takes the one time and from there it's just continuing to facilitate it, uh, isn't the, the most fun. But the peace of mind and the information into your habits that it'll bring to you and to your life and to your relationships with people, your spouse, and with your money uh, will be game-changing. And so for those reasons, I would say that I absolutely enjoy budgeting because I like having control over my time, my finances, and really my peace of mind. Nick, you've mentioned a couple of times the budgets being a tool for pinpointing maybe overspending. You mentioned your wife participating in that at some points. I think that we can all relate to that experience. So how do we bring this all together? Let's talk about that friction. What if your significant other has pushback or doesn't want to participate in it? How does your spouse handle the monthly budget meeting and how do you make it sort of a team effort to involve everyone? Because at the end of the day, if you're not all on the same page, as you were alluding, Nick, uh, the budget can kind of be mute. Yes, and I think that is a, a nuanced question because, like, for example, in my household, I'm the responsible one. I'm not a spender, and my wife is not a spender, really. You know, I'm kind of throwing her under the bus. But, but at heart, she really is not a spender. Therefore, she kind of lets me run with the personal finances. That said, I, I will bring her in on the big stuff. Like we just took a vacation, we both got on an airplane, so we updated our estate plan. 
And I brought her in because that was a big thing. Like, who's going to take care of our kids if, God forbid, we passed away, what they would need to live, what our current budget is now. So she was very engaged in that type of thing. But on the monthly stuff, uh, she's kind of checked out. She has three little kids to chase around. So it's not mission critical that she knows what we spend every month on food or eating out. But on the big stuff, again, I, I, I really do try to loop her in. But if, if one spouse is a spender, one spouse is a saver, and the saver runs the budget, I think it's imperative to getting both on the same page, right? And I don't know what that looks like. I'm not privy to the conversations that you have with your spouse, but getting them involved and on the same page, because I can tell you money and divorce are very closely linked. And I'm not trying to scare anybody, but people fight about money. And right now, it's probably top of mind for a lot of people. It's always top of mind for a lot of people. So just getting in sync, having that spouse team approach or the accountability approach is going to save you from some difficult conversations and perhaps a dis- disastrous endgame if, if you don't grab a hold of the reins. Nick, I'm going to piggyback on that just because that's exactly uh, how our household is run. I, I pay attention to the finances. I enjoy it. I organize that in a way and I understand my wife well enough to understand how much involvement she wants to have and doesn't want to have. And so for me, it's it's being organized and finding the appropriate time to p- present the important data that she needs to hear and be aware of in order for us to continue on the same page. Now, we both don't sit down at the end of the month and open the mail and pay all the bills and update the budget, uh, but we do talk about when there are flare-ups in the budgets or changes that need to be made, obviously life decisions. And so that way she's always got a baseline understanding of where we are financially without putting the responsibility on her to sit in front of Excel, um, which she probably hasn't opened in many years and because she has other very important responsibilities in this household. Um, so I can do that and then we can sit down and in five or 10 minutes really hash some things out. Eric, same question to you. How do you guys handle it in your household there? I think you've got a little bit of a different approach. So yeah, for years we did it together. I was usually the one that did the base math and put together the spreadsheets. And and then we would come together and review, especially in the beginning when we were trying to get out of debt and we were trying to build that financial foundation, we were very close in the whole process. So we would frequently update our transactions at least on a weekly basis, keep our buckets or categories up to date, and then we would use that budget as a guide. So if we wanted to go out on Friday with friends for drinks or something like that, we would make sure we had money in that category. Otherwise, we would ultimately pull it from somewhere else and put it in there to do that. And so it was a real team effort. As things progressed and years went by and we sort of got out of having to nickel and dime every expense, it's it's become a little bit more of a of I'll update it and then either give a report or or she's got the app on her phone as well. So we're always very up to date in the broad picture of it, but as we've moved forward, the day-to-day is is not really that important uh, in terms of staying in touch. But I would say I would emphasize that in the beginning, I think it's very important that that you work together. And so I think the takeaway is as long as one of you guys is doing it, if you have a spouse though that just refuses to be a part of it and and thinks that the whole system is not okay and doesn't want to do it, 
then I would probably say you might want to figure something out because there might be underlying issues. All right, let's, let's wrap this up and get some final thoughts on budgets here. We've talked about how important they are. We've alluded to the fact that they can be extremely simple and highly effective. And the biggest businesses, most successful businesses in the world use them routinely. And yet most people don't use them. And many people probably listening now won't build one. What do we say to those people? I'd say it's time to be a grown up. I would say for those that uh, are just looking for an overarching view of a budget, I'd say simple beats complex. Done is better than perfect. You know, you can make it personal. What works for Keith, what works for Eric might not work for you. Get your spouse involved. It's a, certainly a team approach. And it's hard to make progress, guys. It's hard to change if you don't know where you're currently at. So a budget is a framework for making future decisions. It's like eating vegetables. Sure, you can make it a long time without them, but eventually it's going to catch up to you. So if you make way more than you spend and you're naturally someone that does that and you can save 20, 30% or more continuously for years on end, then fine. It's not going to hurt you. It's probably going to help you, but you don't, you probably, it's not going to be that necessary for you, for you to do that. But for the rest of you, if you're literally in a position right now that you want to get out of debt, you want to save more money, you just are constantly feel like you're struggling with money or you feel like you make enough, but you don't have enough. What are you doing? Your way is not working, clearly. So try it this way. The worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to learn something and then you're going to go back to what you were doing anyways. But the truth of the matter is successful businesses, successful households, successful everything as it pertains to money, the vast majority of them at the foundation have some form of a budget. There you go, folks. We all budget, and you should too. Start building one now. Join us on the next Proper Sense podcast. And as always, guys, check us out at propersense.com.